This week, we mark 20 years after the horrific attacks of September 11th on our nation. This, as we've watched the botched ev evacuation of Afghanistan unfold, and we ask, where is the war on terror headed? Welcome back to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Daftari. I'd like to welcome to the show today's guest, former FBI agent Bobby Chacon, who has worked extensively on counterterror investigations, including extensive assignments in Iraq. And since retiring in 2014, Agent Chacon has worked as technical advisor and writer on Criminal Minds and has since worked on series from HBO Max and ABC. He also has a new podcast out after the fall of the FBI's investigation into 9-11. A very warm welcome to you. Thank you very much for having me, Lisa. Of course. Um, I've been wanting to have you on my show for a very long time. Obviously, we've crossed paths at Fox and at CNN, and um, you're absolutely one of the, the foremost experts in domestic counterterrorism. I know you've also been abroad, so you understand the Middle East uh, and North African landscape when it comes to terrorism. Um, but let's start with this week's 20th uh, anniversary. I think any American who's um, old enough to remember the attacks of September 11th, particularly those who were in New York City or the D.C. area, always have a story of where they were that morning, what they were doing when they got the news. And uh, you have a, an especially interesting story to tell. Yes. Well, I mean, yeah, it was... Um... You know, it was a, a terrible day for, for all of us, you know, in the country. Um, uh, as a uh, native New Yorker who uh, grew up basically uh, with a father who was a detective sergeant in the NYPD, and later my brother uh, became an NYPD detective, and I went into the FBI, uh, first going to law school. But growing up in New York and, and you know, just being a New Yorker, and, and that day, I think, while it affected the whole country, um, affected us, you know, on a different level. And I was assigned to the FBI office in New York City on 9-11. I had been there about 14 years already as an agent. Um, and my position was, I was the leader of the FBI dive team. It was the only dive team in the FBI. So we traveled all over the country, really all over the world, providing services for anyone who needed it. Um, in August of 2001, I flew out to Michigan um, to help the Michigan State Police with the case. And they requested our assistance to recover a, a gun in Lake Michigan. So we uh, as we normally did, I would fly in advance. I'd come back to New York. I'd get the gear ready and the team ready. And then we would uh, go out for the job on the morning of December 11th, 2001. Uh, me and half the team were on an early flight out of Newark Airport to Chicago and then on up to Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, so I, uh, we, we went to the rest of the team was going to follow us later in the afternoon. And so me and three other armed FBI agents who were on my team uh, boarded our flight in Newark, United 91. Uh, it was Newark to Chicago. And as we all know, uh, as most of us know, United 93 um, was Newark to San Francisco. So it was the same plane. It was a 757. Um, however, we were only going half the country, of course, half the country. They were going all the way to the West Coast. They were one ahead of us in the flight path um, because uh, on when you're going to Chicago and San Francisco, it's the same flight path halfway across the country. Um, and so we probably boarded in the, in, the, in the adjacent gate, probably 30, 40, 50 feet from uh, the terrorists and all the poor innocent souls who perished that day on, on United 93. Um, and so as we taxied and took off, they took off a bit ahead of us, I believe. And um, as we taxied and took off out of Newark, we took off to the north. Um, and as a New Yorker, I always gazed out my window and I was lucky enough to be on the the uh, east side of the aircraft that day, and I was looking out at Lower Manhattan. And as we all know, it was a very 
beautiful, clear day um, in New York that day. And I was looking at the towers because they were iconic and they stick out and, and they're a symbol of New York. And I grew up looking at them. I grew up watching them be built. And, um, you know, as I'm watching the towers, I see something impact the North Tower. I see debris. I see smoke. I see a flash and, and kind of like glitter of falling. Did not actually know it was a plane impacting the tower, but I, I, I knew it was something from outside. And, you know, previously we had planes, like small planes run into the Empire State Building back in the, in the 50s or 60s, and you hear those stories. And so uh, the only thing that could be up that high would be an aircraft. And I turned around and I looked at one of my colleagues who was also an armed FBI agent sitting about three rows behind me. And he was looking out too. And I kind of, in my seat, turned around and we both just shrugged our shoulders like, you know, what was that? You know, we said to each other and um, we didn't know at the time. And, and you know, our plane continues to climb and bank uh, west. And um, it wasn't uh, shortly thereafter that uh, the co-pilot uh, came in to the cabin and walk down the aisle. Now, I should preface this by saying that when we travel armed, uh, when we check in, the airline makes out a, a, a slip of paper uh, that notifies the captain and the whole flight crew that they have armed passengers on board, who they are and where they're sitting. And then when we pre-board often, um, we would meet the captain and the co-pilot. So we have a face-to-face, -face. they know what we look like and the flight crew does the same. So all the flight attendants know who we are, what we right. look like. Um, and so she, the co-pilot came back and she kind of signaled for the four of us to meet her in the back galley, which we did. Um, and, and the whole back of the aircraft was empty. And if you remember, the 911 hijackers picked a Tuesday because it was the least traveled day. They did their homework. It was the least traveled day. So they knew those planes would have very few passengers on each one of them. Um, and that's just statistically there to, to determine. And so in the back of our aircraft, there was basically nobody sitting. I remember one person in the maybe in the last 10 rows only one person looked like it was a student on a laptop working um so we get into the back alley and the co-pilot tells us look uh, the world trade center has been hit by aircraft um we have many other aircrafts i think she said like two dozen hijacked or at least not responding to radio traffic from air traffic control she says well, i think we have many we just have a massive hijacking going on and so remember this is very early in the situation so there's a lot of missing, not misinformation, but there's a lot of misinformation that that's kind of going back and forth and rumors and, and things. And so, you know, we, we have to figure out what we do. So I took myself and, and two of my agents, uh, my team members, and I went into the cockpit to talk to the captain uh, and I positioned two of them outside the, the cockpit door and uh, and I left one, one, the fourth person way in the back behind everybody else. And uh, the captain was at that time trying to raise United 93 because I think that air traffic control, because they were having trouble raising 93, at that point, I believe that their transponder had already been turned off. Um, and the, uh, you know, so I think that um, because we were supposed to be the closest one to that plane, the captain was tasked with point to point trying to raise them on the radio um, and was not having any success. And um, so I, I was talking to the, the co-pilot and I, I kind of asked what was going on and she described to me that their sister flight 93 who was by the way they were in that morning in the united pilots lounge at newark airport talking to those pilots mm -hmm. going over the weather reports and and, and the winds and, and what they're you know because they were going to fly almost the same flight path mm -hmm. at least halfway across the country and so they were you know they were going over their flight plans and the weather and things like that and so the the co-pilot said well they they're not responding to the radio and 
um, and they've shut their transponder off. And I asked her because the co the pilot is now engaged in trying to raise them, and I asked her, you know, why would they shut their transponder off? And I think the pilot must have been listening to one ear to our conversation, and he kind of turned and kind of barked a little bit. But I understood. He says they they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't. He meant they wouldn't turn their transponder off. So I looked at the co-pilot, not wanting to bother the pilot, and I said. You know, what does that mean? He, you just told me the transponders off and he's telling me that they wouldn't turn the transponders off. And and she said at that point, I could tell that she was getting a little emotional and, and, and her eyes were welling up. And she says, well, we think that means they're not in control of that aircraft. Wow. And, um, you know, from the 70s in the 80s, when we had those political hijackings and they wanted to be taken to Angola, they wanted to be taken to Cuba. You know, the, the pilot's standing order was take them wherever they want to go. Listen to the hijackers, do what they say. Get, get on the ground, get the get aircraft and the passengers safe, and we'll start negotiating whatever we need to negotiate for your release. So it was always, you stay in control of the aircraft. Mm -hmm. You get where, you, where they want you to go. Don't fight it. Just take them where they want to go. Get that aircraft on the ground and keep everybody safe. And so that was the standing order. So the, so the pilots would never give up control of their aircraft willingly. And so mm -hmm. I think she was basically acknowledging to me that her 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 co-workers were probably incapacitated to some extent, you know, and, you know, I don't know if she thought likely dead, but um, which was the case. Uh, but I think there was a realization that there was some violent takeover of that aircraft on her part. I know. And so um, I just said, well, you know, you keep us safe out here. We'll keep you safe back there. And, and so I, I left the cockpit and, and I gathered my guys again. And I told them what the plan was going to be. And so um, there was actually uh I believe there was a seat or two left in first class that I then put our, our guys in. I sat in my, uh, I took an, oh, I took an, uh, an available uh, aisle seat behind me. Oh, sorry. Um, I took an available aisle seat behind me and, um, and we continued the rest of the flight. So, um, uh, we were originally en route to Chicago. We were never going to make Chicago because the Sears tower is now a, a possible target. And so they diverted us and they said, we're never, you know, we're not going to let you near Chicago. Um, so we ultimately landed in Detroit. Um, and by the time we got down, we were one of the last planes, I think, to land because the, the Detroit airport was packed. I'd never seen an airport where you had planes parked so close to other planes outside of gates on the side runways and things like that. And and we didn't have a gate to go to. And, and so the pilot said, look, we're going to pull in. We're going to have a stairs. You're going to get down and you're you're going to wait for your luggage under the plane. It was very unusual, you know, because we're all standing around on a tarmac, basically, which is, you know, very prohibited. And so, you know, we did that. We waited for our luggage. And then I'm on the phone trying to get our Detroit FBI office for some assistance because, you know, you got four New Yorkers. We got to get back to New York, you know. And um, luckily, Attorney General Ashcroft was scheduled to be in Detroit that morning, I believe. And so his advance team is the FBI provides. Uh, the protective detail for the attorney general. And mm -hmm. so um, they had like, you know, his advanced team of eight FBI agents on the security detail had two 15 passenger vans and they only needed one to get back to Washington because they had to drive as well. And so, you know, I coordinated with our Detroit office and they got us that second 15 passenger van and we got in it and we drove because there were no rental cars available. Right. And the four of us, the four of us then drove uh, the rest of the day and evening uh, back to New York, uh, back to Newark airport to get our, our FBI cars that were parked in long-term parking. Um, and then we dropped that van off and we we went into Manhattan. I got there sometime, 
I, I believe it was dark and it was night and I don't know if it was 10 o'clock midnight, two o'clock, 2 a.m. I don't know. But I remember I was get I got into Manhattan into our 26th Street Garage command post. Uh, and then they sent me down to ground zero. I got to ground zero. I, I remember seeing the lights and the smoke and and it was just, you know, that was it. it you know, I, I saw it, you know, and I was standing there in shock. Um, on the drive back from Detroit to New York, we were, you know, we were talking occasionally. There was a lot of silence, but, you know, we were discussing how many of our coworkers we felt might be dead and, and how many people in general might be dead. And our, I think of our, the four of us, I think the lowest estimate was probably 15 or 20,000 people because we knew how many people worked in those buildings, how many people just transit through the path station, which is underneath the World Trade Center. Right. You know, how many tens of thousands of people just transit through or in that mall below when those buildings collapsed. And so, you know, I mean, I, I had heard on the plane, people started using the plane phones that that they, the buildings collapsed. And I, I attributed that to non-New Yorkers not knowing really what they're talking about and, and believing the rumors because I kind of laughed a little bit inside myself because as a, as a New Yorker, you know those buildings. They couldn't collapse. They're not going to come down. And and it wasn't until we were walking through this very chaotic terminal and I looked over and we all stopped for a minute and there was a big screen TV and a bar and it was showing the, the collapsing towers that I actually stood in shock and could not believe what I was seeing um, watching those towers go. And then at that point, you know, that's when you realize my brother's an NYPD cop working in Manhattan. You know, we have friends that are the FBI office was only four blocks from the towers. And I knew most of my coworkers would be running down there at the, at the initial attack and just wondering how many or how many, as those towers are collapsing, we're just thinking how many of our, how many people we know are dying right at that moment. Um, I lived in Hoboken, New Jersey at the time, which is just across the river with a beautiful view of Manhattan. And Hoboken is a feeder community. Everybody in Hoboken almost works in Manhattan. They take the PATH train. It's one stop to the World Trade Center. Um, and I had six people in my building. I lived in a five-story building, apartment building, and six people in my building died um, that yeah. day. And 200 people in our town, and we were only a one-square-mile town. Yeah. Um, and we, we, we lost the most people of any town outside of New York State. Um, and so, you know, when we got back to Ground Zero, we just started working. And I was I was assigned for a week at Ground Zero, a week up at the morgue, and a week out at the landfill. And I just did that rotation after that. Um, I've had complete goosebumps the entire time <laughs> you've been speaking. Um, I also lived in northern New Jersey at the time. So I know that everybody knew at least somebody, if not somebody's, um, who passed. And it was just a horrific time. And for you to have that experience first on the plane to say, what if, uh, I know you had such a compelling, uh, social media post on, on Instagram and other platforms talking about going to sleep, wondering what if, what if, you know, we, the armed FBI officers would have been on one of those planes. Um, <clears throat> When you got to Ground Zero and you stood there, I actually had the opportunity to go on October 11th, the one month um, afterwards, and it was as if it just happened. I mean, there were yeah. piles of rubble. It smelled like burnt rubber and metals, and um, I can't imagine what it was like the night of. Can you paint that picture for us? I'm sure it's something that doesn't get erased from your memory. Yeah. You know, it was different because you know, being a New Yorker and, and, and working downtown, it's a very, there's an, there's certain energy. There's an energy in, in Manhattan that, that, that people will talk of and it's true and it's palpable. And so when you're working down there, even at night, you're out there. And even though it's kind of a business district, it, there's still a certain energy. Um, and 
there was a different energy when I around when I arrived at Ground Zero on the night of 9/11. Um, they had the big lights uh, partially set up already. It looked like almost like a Hollywood movie set, you know, when you have those huge lights hanging from cranes and things. And they were just setting those things up. And you know, there's still a rescue going on at that point. So you hear people yelling and shouting, and you hear people going quiet. And and um, for days that went on. I remember working on the pile in one of those very long lines where you're handing buckets, buckets hand to hand, moving debris. Um, because they couldn't move the heavy equipment in yet because they thought people must still be alive. And every once in a while, they would shout to everybody to be quiet, stop talking, because one of the dogs heard something or one of the devices that they were using to feed snake down through the rubble to listen for people, they might have picked up something. So they uh, the, the word would go out, everybody kind of quiet. It would happen every couple of minutes or so. And so in the beginning, when I got there, it was dark, but it had this artificial light illuminating it, which is kind of surreal right you know it's not the natural light and so you have this unnatural light and you have this very unnatural odor as you describe it well um and then you just have this energy that's 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 kind of death it's kind of it was eerie yeah yeah, it's a very eerie thing it wasn't the normal energy Mm -hmm. that you feed off the lively energy Yeah, the way I described it was you could hear a pin drop in lower Manhattan, which is unheard of even on Christmas Day. Yeah, Um, yes, very much so. What was your exact role um, in not just that day and and the the months that followed, but, you know, in in the last, you know, um, until you retired, was this something that you worked on? Was it something that you continued your investigations on? Well, in, in my role, because I was head of the dive team, so the dive team obviously suspended all operations temporarily. And so we filled in wherever we could. And so mm-hmm. I, I would spend, for a couple of months, I would spend, like I said, a week at each of the locations. We had three locations, basically, in Manhattan. You had physical locations. So you had the morgue, um, you had Ground Zero, and then you had the Fresh Kills Landfill, which is where all the debris from Ground Zero was being loaded onto barges and, and floated across, and it was being sifted through there. Um, all of those fell under the purview of the evidence response program or the evidence response team, which is the bureau's, for lack of a better term, CSI people. But mm-hmm. for us, it's called ERT. And our ERT program was in charge of the physical sites of the morgue. Um, Jerry Cacuzzo, a friend of mine, was at the morgue. Richard Marks was a terrific agent that ran the Staten Island landfill, the Fresh Kills operation. And then we had a number of people running the Ground Zero operation. So the dive team was part of ERT. We were overseen by the FBI laboratory division that housed and funded and trained the ERT program. And we were part of ERT. And so the, so as a dive team member, I was kind of integrated with ERT and I would I would circulate through those areas. Um, I would occasionally go up to 26th Street Garage because my squad was the special operations squad that um, had all the electronic technicians and the technically trained agents. So my coworkers on my squad were the ones that were running the phone lines, running computer lines in the 26th Street garage, which was our temporary makeshift office because our office in Lower Manhattan, four blocks from the trade center, was shut down because mm-hmm. it, it was just it, it had the air intake system just took in all that just smoke and debris, and it needed to be repaired and stuff. The, the office was not workable, and so we set up in our motor pool where we had like three or four floors of a garage, maybe two floors um, of, a, of a garage, just massive industrial garage. Um, we cleared out all the cars and we made that our office. Now that was enough to handle our administration and our basic investigative team for the Pentbomb case. But all of the leads that were coming in, thousands of leads, if you can imagine, um, needed hundreds of new investigators. So we put an investigative team on the Intrepid 
Air and Space Museum, which was the aircraft carrier that's now turned into a, a museum on the on the west side of Manhattan in the Hudson River. And so they cleared out a bunch of the air, old aircraft out of there and they made the, the, the uh, flight deck that covered, the first level flight deck that's covered, a huge area for all of investigators, maybe four or 500 investigators. Um, and again, we had to run phone lines in there and stuff. And so um, I did not cover leads and I was not part of the Pentagon team, but I was more part of the ERT operation where I was rotating through, going out at fresh kills and, and sifting through a lot of things like that. Um, being at ground zero and then, you know, occasionally uh, the morgue, the morgue kind of took on its own life and had specialists. Uh, and I didn't spend a whole lot of time there after the first day, a couple of days. But um, but yeah, that's my role was more of a physical forensic examiner. The the leads, the general leads that were coming in on the phones were being worked out of this group, out of the Intrepid. And that group consisted of not just FBI agents. I mean, everybody in the world who had a badge and a gun who showed up wanting to work was put to work. Our, the assistant director of our office, Barry Maughan, said, look, any law enforcement that shows up at the Intrepid, raise their hand, you put them to work. And so this was a collaborative effort. I mean, we had people from Fish and Game, we had people from you know, uh, Health and Hospitals Corporation, anybody that was a law enforcement, they had a gun and a badge, they were hooked up, they were you know, hooked up with an FBI team and they would go out and help cover leads. Um, and so that was worked out of the USS Intrepid. The Pent Bomb, and we call it Pent Bomb, P-E-N-T-T, the two T's are for the Twin Towers and bomb. And so we tried to incorporate every, um, all of the, the things uh, in, into that. Uh, that. That was the case name of the case, Pent Bomb, because um, Pennsylvania, Pentagon, Twin Towers, and bomb is always the last, the BOM is always the last three of our terrors, major cases. So, um, so that team was part of our Joint Terrorism Task Force um, in New York, which was the first JTTF that existed. It was formed back in 1979. Now there's one in every single field office, um, mm -hmm. but that, that they went to work right away. And I mean, look, they were they were on the case already. And, you know, I mean, now we know that, you know, even on 9-11, we already knew who Osama bin Laden was. He was under indictment in the Southern District of New York. It was a sealed indictment and, and only the FBI knew about it. Um, but we we had him indicted for his role in the East African embassy bombings. So, I mean, we knew who he was. We knew Al-Qaeda very well. We had people, Ali Soufan, I don't know if you know Ali, um, a friend of mine who's an investigator in New York, an Arabic speaker, uh, born in the Middle East. Uh, he was in Yemen on 9-11, and he was a very good friend of John O'Neill's, who we lost in the, in, in the South Tower. Um, John was our special agent in charge of counterterrorism. He then retired several weeks before the attacks um, and went to work as head of security for the World Trade Center. He, he perished in the South Tower, in his office in the South Tower. Um, but Ali Soufan and, and a team were already in Yemen working on the USS Cole investigation. And so, um, you know, overnight on September 12th, Ali is all of a sudden faced with, you know, the Yemeni cooperation, spirit of cooperation all of a sudden overtook them. And, and Al-Qaeda operatives that they had in custody in Yemen that heretofore we were not told about, all of a sudden they're telling Ali, hey, come in and interview this guy, come in and interview that guy. And, and Ali was like, well, why didn't you tell me this yesterday or last week when, I, you know, um, but all of a sudden uh, both Pakistan and, and Yemen um, found uh, a new spirit of cooperation with the United States because they were concerned that uh, what the response of the United States was going to be um, to these attacks. And so um, we had agents, we have an office in Pakistan. We had an agent there, Jennifer Keenan, a fantastic counterterrorism agent um, from New York who had then taken the legal attache job uh, or the assistant legal attache job in Karachi. And she was on the ground in Pakistan. And so we had agents working this thing overseas the minute it happened. Um, and, you know, I I'm just, I am so honored and so 
thrilled that they gave me their story recently uh, for our production, but they tell the story of, of the, the investigation, how we knew who was responsible. I mean, obviously beyond the 19 hijackers, um, right. they had they had a lot of support, they had a lot of financing, yes. a lot of planning to happen. And so the investigation was to track down those people who financed them, help them plan it, all of that stuff. And speaking to your last point, why was this this recent uh, FBI uh, report that was uh, declassified just this Saturday? So why did it take 20 years um, to get this out? And it was uh, obviously at the request of the families um, of the victims of 9-11. Why did it take this long? That's a good question. That's a question for the bureaucrats in Washington to answer. Um, I don't know why it took so long. I would have to look at the actual report, which I haven't done yet, and see norm the normal reason given, as you know, is to protect what we call sources and methods. That is what method we use to gather this information that's in that report or what source it came from, which normally means human intelligence source or human um, and you want to always protect your sources and methods because if, if you don't protect them, they simply dry up and, and you get less people cooperating with you if they know, mm -hmm. if they realize that they're going to sure. be exposed to danger. And so normally there's a period of time um, that those sources and methods have to be protected. Um, 20 years seems like a long time. Um, uh, if you remember the movie Argo, was, which was made about the uh, rescuing of Iranian hostages, um, that 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 didn't it get declassified for 30 years. And then once it was declassified, someone read the report and said, this is a great story, let's make a movie. Um, now, why that wasn't done with the Osama bin Laden, why they were allowed to access those CIA files so quickly after it happened, you know, and a doctor gets thrown in jail who helped us. And so that's where you see that, that's the reason why the doctor mm -hmm. who helped us identify bin Laden and locate him is, you know, was thrown in jail. And, and, and so, you yeah. know, and, and so those are the kind of, those are the reasons we protect the sources and methods right. and in the Iranian hostage crisis in 1980 that was done and that movie wasn't made until 30 years later great movie and, and that's the way it's supposed to be because by the time 30 years passes you know the method the sources have moved on uh, you know and, and the people may have been rounded up who are responsible and so um so there is that there's that time frame that you always want to keep so your sources and methods are protected sure. I don't know if that's the case here I, I I don't really know I I will just put that out as the normal sure that's the normal excuse. I will have to look. The report generally relates to, so we had, we, we found out, the FBI found out the afternoon of 9-11 that we had, that the CIA knew that we had two Al-Qaeda operatives living in mm -hmm. the United States, in Southern California, the San Diego area, um, Nawaf al-Hazmi and uh, Khalid al-Midhar. And they were associated with a number that was in Yemen, which we, we knew was an Al-Qaeda switchboard basically in Yemen that would kind of connect people. And that number actually was given to the CIA from the FBI exactly. during during the East exactly. African Embassy bombings. We I, just want to, I just want to stop you for one second because I want everyone to come along on this journey with us because what you're about to, to describe is, is an amazing, fascinating story. So these two individuals, they're, they're two of the 19 suicide bombers um, in the 9-11 attacks. They were traced by the CIA from... Uh, Saudi Arabia to Malaysia, all are, I mean, it's a, it's a twisted plot and they end up in Southern California and the CIA knows about them and then they drop the ball. Talking about bureaucracy, why wasn't this information, which you said they were actually tipped off by the FBI to initiate their investigations, um, CIA cannot conduct, if this is correct, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, um, cannot conduct uh, domestic uh, investigations, is that correct? They, they can't that's, continue that's their investigations. So they can't continue the investigation. So then what happens? 
Well, to go back, so during the East Africa Embassy bombings, our, our JTTF goes to Africa and is investigating the case. We come up with a phone number that one of the bombers who ran away from the bombing site, he was supposed to stay, he didn't, he was injured in the hospital. Our agents do an incredible job and they get the phone number. He says, all I know is I'm supposed to call this number if anything bad happens. We go up, we find that number, we give it to NSA and we realize that this is associated with Al-Qaeda. It's a switchboard. It's basically people coming from Afghanistan, they want to talk to the US, they call that number first and they patch them through so that so that it, you know, nothing goes past at that number. And so we give that to NSA, they give they share it with the CIA. And so the CIA goes up on that number and it's a treasure trove of Al-Qaeda information. However, none of that information comes back to us, even though we gave them the number. And so- Why? Alex, why? I mean, I think why. everyone's wondering why. Here's why. Alex Station, which is responsible, which was at the time responsible for investigating Al-Qaeda on the CIA side, is a, you know, CIA is an intelligence operation. We had FBI agents assigned to Alex Station, but they were prohibited from the FBI from sharing certain information. So the, the JTTF and, um, in New York is a, you know, is a criminal investigative body. They're going to throw people in jail. They have Osama bin Laden already indicted under seal. They, they, you know, they, they, they arrested and, and, and convicted the 1993 bombers. This is what we do. We go, we find terrorists, we investigate them, we charge them under our criminal statutes with violations of the law, we throw them in jail. That's how justice is sought in the United States. Intelligence operations are, have a different mindset and they have a different goal and objective. So the, the worry has always been that when we go into court criminally, we have to turn everything over to defense. It's called discovery. It has to be transparent, the process and everything to, sure. to assure that rights are protected. And so the intelligence people are always worried and afraid that we're going to share some sources and methods in open court that then will be exposed and will be no longer usable to them. And so um, there was what we call at the time was called the wall, you know, sometimes called the Chinese wall, sometimes it's called the wall. And the wall separated criminal investigations from intelligence operations. And so they used the excuse of the wall why they didn't tell us. Now, RJTTF and Agent 60 Baumgart were on the tail of these guys because they knew they were associated with East African embassy bombings. On five different occasions, at least, the New York JTTF asked the CIA about Khalid al-Nidhar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. They asked them by name about that. This them. is maddening. Five, this is maddening. And five times the CIA said no. Now, during the 9-11 commission, CIA Director Tennant gets up there and he basically doesn't say the accurate things. And this blows up in the FBI and says, how could he have testified to that? The, the, invest, the inspector general of the CIA immediately has to start making phone calls to some people in the FBI. And five days later, Mr. Tennant has to reappear before the commission to amend certain of his answers. Basically, he lied the first time about whether or not the CIA ever turned that information over. To this day, they still claim they turned it over. They did not turn it over. We have proof that they didn't turn it over because every time we wow. get something that's classified to that level, there's a log. That information has to be logged in. There are visitors logs. No, there's no evidence ever that they passed that information over to us. They kept, they held on to it. Now, there's a further debate about whether even if we knew we would have been able to stop. Well, not knowing, certainly we couldn't stop it. So there are, there's a split in the FBI about, you know, some people think, well, we maybe we stopped that one cell, that one flight, but they didn't know. About, who knows? That that's an open question. However, in my opinion, and in the opinion of certain people on the, the JTTF who were intimately involved in the investigation, that information should have been turned over to us. They still use it as the wall. We couldn't, you know. In fact, on 9/11, about two o'clock in the afternoon, when the JTTF is in a phone conversation with CIA, 
And they tell them, these two guys, and they say, yeah, we knew they were living. And, and, and Steve and the people on JTF explode. And the answer was, we did it all by the book. And that was their, that was their, we did it by the book. We, we played this one all by the book. Wow. Um, well, now, and, you know, there's and, now and, a lawsuit, right? Well, there's a lawsuit because those two guys in, in Southern California, when they arrive, one or two of them, they have very bad English. They had a, a network of support. People that picked them up at LAX, Los Angeles Airport, drove them down, helped them find a place to live, helped them kind of enmesh themselves in the community, where to eat, where to go, that kind of thing. So where to pray. So they found a mosque. And, and so now there's even a split within the FBI about how much of that was driven by the Saudi government and how much that was just the local Saudi community. Look, I was, I've been an expat on several occasions. After I retired, I moved to Brazil. Uh, for three years. And I fell into a U.S. expat community who helped me out and we would have meetings and, and they would have hikes and we would have outings and stuff. And it was just to kind of be among people who you knew or who you were more familiar with. And they would kind of sure. slowly in ingratiate you in the, into the local community. Now, how much of that was that was of those two people, the support they got and how much of it was you know, Saudi government sponsored support. That's what's open to debate. And that's what, you know, there was one particular individual that is tied to the Saudi government now, not officially. And so different countries have different ways that they deal sure. with, you know, their things. And so there's a split even within the FBI about whether or not the Saudi government was actually helping support these guys or whether it was really just the local Saudi community in Southern California who all help each other. Right. And, and, and I, quite frankly, I don't, I don't come down on either side of that. I, I don't know enough about the particular case right. of those two guys. Um, there are people that do, and and even people that know very intimate details of that case, they fall on both sides of the fence. Some say, right. you know, that guy was loosely mm -hmm. associated with the Saudi government. Um, and, and so, but whether or not that's the crux of the question, and that's the crux for the family, because the, if, can the family maintain a cause of action, a lawsuit against the Saudi government for supporting those two guys that were living in Southern California? Right. Now, this report that we mentioned, the 16 pages, I think it does delineate some of these on the ground connections um, with the, the expat community that you mentioned, um, but does not uh, establish a, an exact correlation between the Saudi government and, and these individuals, which obviously it, it's going to, I think, remain unknown um, uh, at least by the the by the book, as I will use right. those words, right? Um, and the lawsuit that we speak of, I think a lot of these families are wondering why the CIA did not hand over this information because I think it's a lot of only ifs, just like your, you know, flight situation, and just like you know, there's so many, uh, you know, things that that led to um, how well orchestrated this just was, right? Um, how many? Um, I was reading this piece in the in USA Today that talked about how they had, you know, one of those virtual um, mailboxes in Fort Lee, and how they, you know, had dinner at this diner in Wayne. And I was like, my goodness, these are places that I would frequent. Right, I mean, did, right. we, did we pass by these terrorists? Were they kind of planning up the table next to us at a restaurant and not know it? Um, I think it's it's that way for a lot of people. Um, and, and we shouldn't we shouldn't move on before we, you know, I will also mention that, look, sure. and everybody knows that there was an agent in, in Phoenix and there was another agent in Minneapolis separately who said, we have guys taking flight lessons who don't have any interest in landing. And it's weird. And we are, and they both requested additional <clears throat> aggressive measures from FBI headquarters to follow these people. Now there was, right. and some people say 9-11, the failure was a failure of imagination that we couldn't imagine that they would do something this. And so what happens is I was a field agent my whole career, all 27 years I spent in the field. I never went to FBI headquarters, never a bureaucrat. 
but some of the bureaucrats, at, 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 you know, that we know in all Washington institutions, as they get up the ladder in their agencies, they become more risk averse because they don't want to jeopardize their career making a bad decision or wrong decisions or seemingly wrong decisions. So when they get somebody from the field who wants to be aggressive and wants to go after somebody who's Muslim, um, there's a pullback and there's a reticence and there's a hesitation on letting the field be more aggressive about that. And so I think that that was a failure also on the part of the FBI right. that right. we didn't, that we weren't, that headquarters wasn't as aggressive in telling its field agents, yeah, go after that person, go after that. Because I think there was a certain hesitancy and they did not want to be accused of profiling or anything like that, and which is wrong. Islamophobia. Uh, yeah, they did not want to be accused of Islamophobia. Um, and however, what, yeah. you know, and looks what happens. Yeah, I was going to say, and guess what? After that, after 9-11, that, that was the, the, the backlash is that you weren't able to target people who, in fact, may have been in, inside a terror cell because, and I always give the example, it's like if you're looking for, you know, a culprit that has blue hair, I'm going to focus in on the culprits that have blue hair. It's not that I'm, you know, profiling or, or targeting them. But, you know, um, to your last point, I always refer to, to 9-11 as a loss of innocence for this country because there's so many, these attackers took advantage and well advantage and of, of our, our our innocence of our, our naivete in, in certain ways and now you can't get a one-way ticket you know on an air, airline without there being you know questions asked at the gate or you know um going on without luggage or this the way that we have you know 25 different body scans at the airport and and, and all those different things obviously uh we learn from those mistakes but um I think for years we've tried to kind of get our wrap our heads around this war on terror, right? So we went into Afghanistan, we went into Iraq. Um, we were actually then continually reminded this funding is actually coming from Tehran, from Qatar, from other places. And uh, basically it's been like playing whack-a-mole, right? It's very difficult to fight an ideology that spreads as fast as a YouTube video or a post on Facebook or a WhatsApp chat. Um, how would you characterize this evolution of the war on terror here in the U.S. Um, over the last 20 years? And what's your assessment? Are we safer today from an attack of that scale than we were on that day? I, my, to answer your last question first, yes, I think we are safer. I don't think we're as safe as we could be, um, but I approach it from a criminal investigator's mindset, right? And so but I always have to remember that there are, that's not the only uh, mindset that, that comes into play, particularly when the decisions are made at a higher level. Policymakers and, and government officials don't always have my 100% mindset of a criminal investigator. Um, and so civil liberties come into play and different, you know, different, there are different impacting uh, points of view other than just me as a, look, if it was me as a criminal investigator, I can tell you a whole slew of things that should be put into effect. But I also know that there's a constitution and we need to protect people's rights. So there's there's always a balance. And that's what people don't understand. Like when 9-11 happens, you know, some of these things in retrospect, you don't see the you don't see the benefit of the balance because you realize what bad thing happened. So you're like, oh my God, we should have totally done all this other stuff. But in you know, before it, the bad thing really happens, you know, we always have to play that balancing game, right? So we're we're balanced by civil libertarians and and by policymakers and, and also diplomacy. So you you know you talked about Qatar and you talked about you know Tehran and, and, and the financing and and there are and I'm not a diplomat and I've never worked for the State Department, but I know they have to navigate that arena of of diplomacy and and relationships and things like that. And so you know there it's not always. Clear cut. Everybody looks at it through my lens because we're all, you know, amateur detectives. We're all investigators. We're all, you know, we have it. But 
but the, the, the diplomatic side and the civil libertarian side also kind of comes into play. Now, should they? To what extent? What what gets weighted? How much they? How much weight is given to those factors? You know, that's that's the the ongoing debate all the time. Should we give more weight to you know civil liberties? Should we give more weight to the the criminal law enforcement? You know, should we give more weight to the diplomacy uh, aspects? And so those are things that are always going to be debated, and 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 we have to strike some balance. Couldn't we be one hundred percent safe? Sure. We could be 100%. We strip search everybody that ever goes near anything, right? On a train, on a plane, on a bus. You know, so you, you, there are ways to be 100% safe and there are ways to be not safe at all. And so where on that spectrum we fall is really up to the American people. It's it's how we, who we elect as our elected representatives, what kind of path the Patriot Act or what kind of packs are passed. And so as a society, I don't get to decide that. And I, I fully understand that. And when I was a criminal investigator, I would uh, I would abide by whatever laws were in place at the time, and I would respect people's constitutional rights, of course, and that's that's paramount, and that's the, the oath I took. Um, right. but where we where we end up on that spectrum, and I don't that's kind of always a moving thing. Exactly, uh, society. That's what we have to. I right. mean, people should be engaged in that. They should be talking to their local elected officials and right. their, their federal elected officials, and, and they should be engaged in that conversation. Yeah, it's it's similar to what we're having with the uh, the debate around the vaccine, for example. You know, I yeah. think, it, like you said, it's a moving it's a moving piece, and I think people have different opinions depending on their personal view on that item, on that subject. So it's difficult to kind of have a, a hard and fast rule about our our freedoms versus uh, the government's control and and their mandates. Um, we have to take a, a look at Afghanistan for a moment. Um, in the scheme of the 20 year um, war on terror, in the scheme of, like you said, trying to be 100% uh, on US soil um, while you know uh, respecting um, civil liberties and our constitution and all of that. Uh, now we have you know, added another factor here. Um, we've given a terror organization a complete sovereign state um, to rule and to now, um, I guess that's why I asked the question, are we any better off when it seems like the fight that we got into um, ended in, in a way that's much worse than some do-it-yourself jihadis planning and plotting in a cave in the corner of Afghanistan? Well, yeah. So, I mean, if we, if we just a brief history of it, like, you know, so we know that Al-Qaeda is the organization that carried out the 9-11 attack, the most brutal attacks in, in the history of our country, uh, domestic terrorist attacks domestically. Um and it was planned out by al-Qaeda, who had been given safe haven by the Taliban, who was basically the controlling, if you will, government of, of Afghanistan from, from 95 or 96. And so um, they gave them not only safe haven, but they gave them places to train and have these massive training camps and move around and, and so avoid detection, avoid surveillance and things like that. So, so um, our war of going into Afghanistan to weed out al-Qaeda, really, we did give to the Taliban a very brief period of time to provide us with the Al-Qaeda. And, and when they refused, we went in, um, you know, very briefly, they were given the opportunity and they, they, they chose not to take it. So the Taliban was not the enemy per se. The Taliban was the people who gave safe haven to Al-Qaeda, who was the real enemy who attacked us. The, 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 the Taliban to this day, I don't believe, has the desire to to mount international jihad and to and to and to attack the United States, they may. But in my opinion, it, the the bigger danger is they will, of course, give safe haven to Islamic Islamic fundamentalists and Al Qaeda and ISIS and groups like that yeah. to re flourish, 
right? And like you said before, it's a whack-a-mole thing and you have to kind of always be vigilant in, in striking them where they pop their heads up. Well, now we have this entire country where we can't get to. We can't reach with our little mallets and, and, and knock them down. And so I think that the reason why we haven't been attacked the last 20 years is we've taken the fight to them overseas. We've kept them on the run. We've, we've, we've been here, we've been there, we've been whacking those moles wherever they, now we have this huge area of land we can't reach. The mallets, our mallets won't reach. And so how quickly they flourish, how quickly they now yeah. kind of come into being again and how quickly they start using that area to train and to plan attacks and then export those attacks is anybody's guess. I hope that our intelligence services are on it. I hope our military stays somehow somehow engaged in that fight so that we can monitor them. Um, but but that's the clear danger is now that they have they have a, a the Taliban a willing I hate to even call them a government, but they have a willing government now there, a state that's going to allow them to have training camps and to train exactly. and carry out that. They they claim not to, but we know we, right. we, we can't trust their word, obviously. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I, I agree exactly with, with what you said, that they will be in cahoots with one another. What was your reaction with that opinion? Uh, what was your reaction to um, the, the U.S. saying that we're sharing intel with the Taliban in order to go after ISIS-K uh, for the attack at that Kabul airport? Yeah, it, it's so concerning, you know, because uh, by all accounts, some of the same actors from 20 years ago and into intervening people that were in Guantanamo Bay and people that we know to be, you know, major sponsors of terrorism have now, you know, have now come back into major positions within the Taliban government, if you will, of Afghanistan. Um, mm -hmm. So, so we're dealing with some of the same people that we hunted down and, and, and know are, are, are sympathetic to terrorism, if they're not terrorists themselves. So mm -hmm. uh, it's really concerning that we put ourselves in this position where now we don't control that landmass, or we don't have a friendly government that helps us to have access to that landmass, um, uh, and now we've ceded to a, a group of people that clearly is more sympathetic to the terrorists than to us, and now to be having to be holding to that group of people to say we'll share this with you, but you have to help us get these people. They've clearly established that they're more sympathetic to those people. They're more aligned with those people, those terrorists. And so um, it, it really creates a really um, unfortunate situation. I think that we have to at all ever rely on anything um, to do with the Taliban. Right. Right. Um, I heard you say a few times throughout the course of our conversation that the FBI is split on this, the FBI is split on that. Um, you know, how has the the FBI uh, changed over the, the last few decades in terms of, um, you know, uh, inserting themselves as an agency um, in the political play that takes place in Washington, the president that's in office, um, you know, what? It's 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 unusual to hear that a an agency like the CIA or the FBI or law enforcement by any you know standard it would be split on anything when their job to me seems so clear cut. Well, I mean, you know, again, it all depends on you know FBI agents are people just like everybody else, and we serve we actually do in certain states serve on juries and things like that. So so it's a matter of you know how much evidence you as a person need to present presented with. To believe something. So when I say, like, for example, there's a split within the FBI. Some FBI agents believe that the Saudi government did support. Some people don't. The people that don't don't say that the Saudi government didn't support them. Those two terrorists that were living in Southern California. They simply say we don't see enough evidence to be comfortable with making that statement definitively. 
So where you where you're comfortable, like where a juror is comfortable with saying beyond a reasonable doubt or not beyond, you know. So it, it's that kind of analysis. So you have some agents that say, when I look at the totality of this information, in my mind, the Saudi government was support, providing support to these people. We have other agents who are, you know, so we, we're as diverse as the population at large, not really, but we should be, um, who look at that same body of information and say, well, it looks like it, it's possible, but it's not enough evidence for me to feel comfortable making that declaration. Do you think that that that, that FBI agents over the last, particularly over the last five, six years, have allowed their politics to to sway and influence their work increasingly? Well, some have clearly. I mean, yes, there's no denying that. Um, we've seen the text, we've seen the things. So there's no denying that there was a, what I call a cabal that had kind of ascended to power in the FBI. Hopefully now I know that the, that the people of that cabal are gone because I knew some of them um, and they're gone. Um, now, whether or not that spouts up again, hopefully, hopefully the director and, and some people have put safeguards into place so that never happens again. We had a group of people who ascended to power in the FBI who allowed their political leanings to come into play. Um, I mean, you had a deputy director of the FBI whose wife was running as a political party. That would have never happened years ago. Um, and so uh, taking money from a from a, a, a political organization and, you know, and so you, you know, it was always the the appearance of impropriety is enough. Right. And certainly mm -hmm. there was a lot of appearances of a lot of impropriety going on. And, and the protestations to, to the, oh, you never, I never did anything political. You know, it doesn't matter. The, the, again, the appearance of impropriety is enough to call right. your credibility into question. And the FBI right. has always relied on its credibility. Now, the, 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 the thing that I always kind of keep my head on is that most of that happened at FBI headquarters. And even when it happens in the field, like we're seeing in Indianapolis with the Larry Nassar investigation, I mean, we see it happen with the head of the office who's politically motivated because he's looking for a job in the private sector and things like that. So the field agent, the working field agent, which I was for 27 years, is out there. Those FBI agents are out there doing the job every day and they're doing it without regard to political affiliation. They're doing it without regard to religious or any other type of affiliation. They're doing it very objectively. They're doing it by the law. They're protecting the Constitution. Um, there are some bureaucrats within any government agency that rise up to a level where they start allowing their political leanings or their career ambitions to influence their decision making. That's unfortunate. That always has to be weeded out. There always there are in. That's why inspector generals exist to keep an eye on that kind of stuff and that, you know and other things. But m that kind of stuff is important to okay. to watch and to make sure that those bureaucrats are not allowing themselves to be. Uh, swayed. And unfortunately, it happens. You, the only thing you can hope for was when it does happen, it gets caught and those people are weeded out and new people take their place. And if those people start doing it, then there's the safeguards that are in place to, to stop them before they can do some damage. Unfortunately, in the situations like we've seen in the last few years, damage has been done. Um, and now we have to work to restore the confidence of the American people. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, what's interesting is when you were telling the story about your flight on 9-11, uh, I thought to myself, no wonder this guy spends his time writing um, for shows like Criminal Mind and um, others, because it seems like your real life stories are, are actually uh, more Hollywood than the Hollywood stories you write. <laughs> um, I'm sure you have a ton of great stories and you're a, a masterful storyteller, which is why, you know, it's such a pleasure to have you on this show. But now as you move forward, um, where do you find the inspiration for your on-air stories? It's easy for me. I, I find inspiration in the working FBI agents that are out there in the field every day doing the job. And, and that, that's those are my colleagues. And 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 so 
I'm not unique. I have a very interesting career, but so does every other FBI agent out there that's worked 25 years in the field, in the street. And so when I started the, the after the fall um, project, uh, I went and I found, you know, 30, 35 people that were working in New York or, or Shanksville or the Pentagon on the ground. And we interviewed them at length. And then we built a story and we, we tied the stories together. It's not a, I hate, I, I'm hard to call it a podcast because it's really a it's really a verbal telling of a historical document record. And so you'll hear from Ali Soufan directly. You'll hear from Steve Baumgart directly, Kenny Maxwell, uh, Mary Galligan, who in who was the overall leader of the Pentagon investigation, talked talks yeah. at length in the project. And so you'll hear the people that were on the ground at the Pentagon minutes after the attack. Uh, you'll find you'll 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 hear from the people that were in Shanksville. Um, you know, recovering the black boxes and, and the human remains from that crash site. You'll hear from the people at the morgue, Jerry Cacuzzo, who ran the morgue operation in New York City. You know, you'll hear directly from them. You'll hear from the people that were running the investigation. What was happening in Yemen? What was happening in Pakistan? Steve Baumgart went from the JTTF. He was at ground zero by December of 2001. He's in Afghanistan. He's interviewing uh, people taken off the field of battle by the military, a first of its kind thing for the FBI. So you'll hear how he set up a little interview room in a bombed out airport in Afghanistan. And he's dealing with these military guys who are taking these guys off the field of battle. So um, you will hear the entire story of the 9-11 investigation, how we got the Khalid Shay Mohammed KSM, who is now on trial down in Gitmo, how we got to people like um, uh, Abu Zubaydah, how we captured him, um, and, the, and the shootout during which he was wounded, and how we, you know, FBI agents are basically plugging his wounds to keep him alive because we know the value of this guy and all the information he has about 9/11. And so, wow. and that happened in Pakistan. And so, you know, you'll hear these incredible stories. Um, and, and after the fall is available on Audible, Audible.com, and and it's it's I think 16 or 17 episodes, about eight hours in total that you listen, and you'll hear directly from these people telling you the story. There's there's a narrator who carries you along on the story and and takes you along, but it, it, and to me it's a riveting uh, telling of how we you know it, it basically starts with the East Africa embassy bombings. Um, the, we have one or two episodes called Before the Fall, but After the Fall is really about what happened, how the FBI sprung into action the afternoon of 9/11, and then right you know you know from there on, uh, and how we track down all the way to you know Osama bin Laden getting killed by the Navy SEALs and, and, and things. And so I think I think it's it's a great historical record for all Americans to listen to. It's it's six hours that you'll you'll find I think very beneficial and very educational about what happened after after the fall. And for me, I'm, I'm writing other other uh, projects now. Uh, and it's just, I rely on the incredible work done by my colleagues currently and, and, and people that are retired. I wanna be in a position to tell, I'm a storyteller, I wanna tell their stories. If they're not storytellers, they have the experience. I can draw the stories out of them and I can tell it in, in, in the proper way. And so that that's that's what I see as my calling now in my second career is to keep telling the stories of the incredible work done by the hardworking men and women of, of the FBI. Yeah, indeed. And thank you so much because you, you do tell a very good story. Um, and uh, the way that, that you really paint out the story, the, the experience that you had. And, and um, I thank you for your expertise. I thank you for your service to this country, uh, your continued service in telling these stories. It's absolutely um, amazing. And I highly, highly recommend that you watch After the Fall. I will um, link it under the podcast on YouTube. And uh, I thank you, Bobby, for coming back on. I hope that you'll join us once again very soon. 
And for those of you who'd like to subscribe to our weekly podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Defteri. And to sign up for our daily top 10 email leases list, go to foreigndesknews.com. And we'll see you all next week.